on the Christmas story, and one of the things that is so overwhelming is God's grace in giving us the gift of Christ, and that's what we want to consider for the next few weeks, and so today we're going to look at John 3.16. Even as we sing Psalm 67, as we heard that read in Spanish and English. Um, I think it's important to remember that it wasn't first written in English. It was not first us that were glad, uh, but it was the Jews. And as that psalm is being sung by God's people, Israel, the Jews... Do you know who they were singing about? Us. We are the nations. And in Jesus, we have become glad in the gospel. And so I think it's very, very important for us not to have some American-centric view of the Bible. It is a Christ-centered view of the Bible. And it's a Christ-centered view of the Bible that understands that we are seated here today with the Word of God in our hands, singing it and hearing it as the nations who have become glad in Christ. If you would stand in reverence to the reading of God's perfect Word, this is why we have become glad in Christ. This is why, as the nations, we can delight in the goodness of God. John 3.16, For God so loved the world... That he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Oh God, as I read those words, they are so familiar to us. Many of us here today, as I started to read them, just sort of recited them in our minds. Many of us here today, as I said, John 3.16, did not even open their Bible because they know it. And God, I pray today that this very familiar passage would be seen in a way that we've never seen it. That it would change our understanding of your love, that it would stretch it, that it would expand it. God, that we would come to realize and understand that it's impossible to even begin to fathom your love for us. And what we know of your love for us is only, it's only a thimble full of the ocean of grace that will never end for us for eternity. And so, God, today I pray that you would open up our eyes. The familiarity of this verse would not cause us to be disinterested or bored or disengaged. But, God, your word and your love would pierce our hearts today. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. When I was around the age of five, many of you have heard this story before. My dad absolutely ruined Christmas for me. He ruined every Christmas ever since for me. 
Now, nothing happened that sounds like sad country music song that happened in Lewisburg, Tennessee. Nothing like that happened. But my dad provided for me a memory on Christmas morning that ever since has never been comparable. I went to, not, I went to sleep the night before Still trying to figure out, you're a kid, you're still trying to figure out what is this Christmas thing. You hear the stories, you're still trying to put it all together. You know the next day you're going to get some gifts, you know how that works. And and I went to bed that night just wondering what was going to happen the next day. And I'll never forget walking into the living room and sitting there before me on a kickstand was a Suzuki 50cc motorcycle sitting there in all its glory. (laughs) And there's a picture of me on that motorcycle. I don't think that was Christmas Day, but there I am on this glorious uh, Christmas gift I received that morning. And, And I'll never forget it. And then I'll never forget what my dad did, something that all good dads would do in that moment, is he goes over to it and he grabs it and he just kickstarts it in the living room. And so there is smoke and the smell of gas and this small chainsaw-like engine just roaring in our living room. And, and I'll never forget that gift. You can take that down now. I know it's kind of distracting. Uh, such a nice-looking kid. But, but I'll never forget it. And I've, uh, every Christmas morning, I think about that Christmas morning. And, and every gift since, I, I've thought, you know, nothing compares to that moment. And my dad did that for my kids a few years back. He decided to show up on Christmas morning with two four-wheelers for my kids. And we've never been able to give them gifts comparable to two four-wheelers. Nathan asks every year if his granddad is coming. And when you ask Nathan what he wants for Christmas, the first thing out of his mouth is a motorcycle. And that, that he ruined it for my kids too. But when we come to John 3.16, we, we find a gift that is meant to overwhelm all other gifts. We find a gift here from God that when we think about all we have, And all that we have been given from God, from others, the goodness of this world, the grace of living here. We think about all we have. This gift is to overwhelm it all. We're we're to realize that nothing compares to what God has given us here in John 3.16. This is a familiar passage. Last week we began to see the gift of seeing Jesus As God's grace and mercy to us, he's allowed us to see his glory in flesh and blood as the word became flesh and dwelt among us. We have grace upon grace upon grace upon grace in Christ. And here, John begins to describe this specifically what this grace is. And notice verse 16 as he begins, For God so loved the world. For God so loved Last week, we were reminded how John began this gospel. He begins with this statement of God's eternality. The fact that God has always existed. He has always been there. God had no beginning. 
And in the beginning, God decided that he would create a world. He decided that he would create things. And here we see why he did. Notice he loved. Now the definition for love is a commitment to another's good no matter what it costs. A commitment to another's good no matter what it costs. And this is a shocking statement that this eternal God who had no beginning, who's always been there, is self-sufficient in and of himself, that he loved, that he is committed to another's good no matter what it costs him. And in 1 John, we read the words, God is love, meaning this commitment, God himself, in and of himself, before there was anything, without anything else, God defines what love is. And because God has always existed, love has always existed. Now, I think it's an important question to ask, how does that work out? Why is that even possible? Even when we think about this, God is love, for some of us, that, that doesn't feel right. That, that almost sounds blasphemous. Are we saying love is a God or How does that work out? God's a lot of things. How can he be love? Or how can, in 1 John, John say he is love? Well, the only way that God can be love is that he is a trinity. You see, we believe that God is three persons in one. Three fully divinity. Three fully divine All three, God, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And guess what the Trinity does in and of itself? They love. They love one another. The Father loves the Son and has always loved the Son. The Son loves the Father and has always loved the Father. And the love between them It is made known and magnified between them by the Holy Spirit who himself also loves the Father, who also loves the Son, and whose longing and desire and commitment is to make known the Son and the Son's love and the Father's love. And so God himself, without us ever existing, before anything ever existed, God was love. God is love. God has always been love. And love has always existed because God has always existed. And you know why that's good news for you? You know why that's good news for me? Because love doesn't find its beginning in me. Love doesn't find its beginning in you. Love is rooted in God. Love is rooted in God's existence. That's why love isn't dependent upon you. God didn't look at us and all of a sudden, something that wasn't there before welled up within him. He didn't create the world and put us in it and then all of a sudden, something happened within him that wasn't there before. No, love was always there. And if if it's the case that we cause God to love, it would be bad news. Because we could do something that would cause God not to love us. 
but because love is rooted in him and has always been rooted in him. That is good news for us. That is glorious news for us. And notice, for God so loved the world. He, He is love, and he makes the decision to love the world, to allow this galactic love flowing between the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit to spring forth into a place that he creates. The word here for world is cosmos, and it refers to the place that God created in the very beginning. Six days, God creates the world. With his word, he forms and shapes a place. And he says, it is good. It is all good. It is all perfect. It's all whole. And on the last day, he creates man. He creates Adam. He creates Eve. And he puts them in the world. And he says, now it's very good. And he creates this place that he is going to show his love. The love that's always existed is going to be directed to the world he created and the people he has placed in the world. And and we have to stop and realize, God is not distant to the world. He's not disengaged to the world in which we live in. He's not disinterested. Love is a commitment to another one's good no matter what it costs. And God has and always been committed to the good of the world. The the, the good that he created, now he's committed to restoring. The very goodness that he created and putting man in the world, he is committed to restoring. He is engaged in love toward the world. He set history in motion so that he would love the world. Now, one of the things that magnifies God's love for the world is we no longer live in a world that's good, wholly good. It's scarred and marked with sin and rebellion. It's cursed by death because those he created and put in the world to love rejected his love and chose to love themselves. And so the world is cursed with sin the world is cursed with death because of our sin because we have rejected God's love the world is no longer lovely which magnifies the fact that God still loves the world it's not a lovely place there's sin there's death there's disease there's sickness and we're not lovable people we reject the greatest love of all God's love for us And what magnifies, what makes much of his love is that he still loves us. And one of the things John does in his gospel is he takes this word world and he begins to to flesh it out. He begins to talk about how the world that God created, it's in darkness now. And God sends his light in Jesus. But you know what the world does when the light comes? The world rejects it. He comes to his own, but his own would not receive him. And and this rejection ends with God high and lifted up at the end of the Gospel of John on a cross. And so one of the things John wants to do is show how God loves the people of the world. The extent to which he will go to tell us his love for us. And so he tells stories of 
people in the world, all kinds of people in the world. He tells a story in John chapter 3 of a man named Nicodemus who was a very, very religious man. He was the logo of goodness. He was the logo of what it meant to, to be a good guy. He was a teacher in the synagogue. He had it all together. And yet he hears Jesus' teachings. And he, and he hears of this kingdom that is coming. And he hears of eternal life. And he realizes in his heart, although he, he has all of this religious stuff, he doesn't know the love of God. He doesn't know what eternal life is. And so he goes to Jesus by night. And Jesus turns to a man who was a Jew who would have thought he was born loved by God because of his skin, because of his flesh, because of his traditions. And Jesus would say to him, no, to have eternal life, you must be born again. To know the love of God forever, you must be born from above. The love of God must come down to you from above. And then John tells a story of a Samaritan woman. We think about Samaritans. They were half-breed heretics. They were scum of the earth. They had created this temple. They had created this, what the Jews thought of as this false religion that sort of mocked their religion. They were outcast. And yet Jesus goes to a Samaritan at a well. A woman. She is there gathering water. And yet she's a woman who is looking for love. She sleeps around. She's a Samaritan and she's a woman. And Jesus had no business speaking to her. But he walks up to her and he says, I know what you're trying to do. You're looking for love everywhere. And you still haven't found it. And if you knew the gift of love that's standing before you, you wouldn't be here looking for water. You would be asking me for eternal water. A river full of water that will never run dry and will satisfy your soul. Yes, you, even a Samaritan outcast prostitute, can know the love of God. And what John begins to do is he begins to unpack what this word world looks like in real people. It's the Jews. It's the Gentiles. It's the world full of all kinds of people. Religious people like Nicodemus. Samaritan women who are, who are looking for love. God loves them in spite of their sin. And it's a good time this time of year to remember that. Because you're going to gather over the next three weeks with all kinds of people. Some of you are going to go to work parties. Some of you are going to go to family get-togethers. And you're going to look around at Meemaw's on fixed incomes. And then you're going to have the cousin who pulls up in the Lexus with the bow wrapped around it on Christmas morning. You're going to see all kinds of people. And, and you're to be reminded of God's worldly love. Because those people who you are supposed to love the most quite often are those who you love the least during Christmas, right? They irritate you the most. And, and you're going to have Aunt Sally. She's going to be bragging just like Nicodemus would have 
about all the Operation Christmas Child boxes that she packed herself and how she goes to church every week and she's going to look across the room at one of your cousins who hadn't been to church in six months and she's going to begin to, to harp on church attendance and then you're going to look over at your uncle who still brags about being a player and he, he, he's still out on the dating scene and he's been at the club and you're going to see religious and you're going to see rebellious and you're going to say, what in the world am I doing here? How can I love these people? And you're to be reminded, God is love and God chose to love the world and he chose to love religious twits like Aunt Sally and Jeremy Haskins. And he chose to love rebellious, rebels who are still looking for love. And you're to re be reminded God so loved the world. And here is a description of how he loved the world. Notice it begins, for God so loved the world. And what John's going to do here is he's going to describe how God has loved the world. Notice that he gave. That's important to remember, love isn't passive. We have such a passive concept of love in our lives and in the culture that we live in. We think love just happens. We, we talk about falling in love. We talk about falling out of love. And, and love is this thing that, that just sort of happens to us. It happens to others. But here, love acts. And, and notice the essence of God's love is other-centeredness. To give, he has to consider others. He has to consider the world. God, the essence of God is other-centeredness, concern and commitment to others. But we see here that God's love is displayed as an act of grace. The, the word he gave, it, it's meant to fill his love full of grace. First of all, God's love is grace because it's God that loves. And, and when God gives, you can't pay him back. God has given, and because God has given, there's no way to turn around and pay him back because he's God. What does he need? He's sufficient in and of himself. And so when he gives, he can't be paid back. So God's act of love is an act of grace from a sufficient, self-sustaining creator who needs nothing. Now, that sort of flies in the face of the way we think about love. Because when we think about love, normally we even think about giving as an act of love. It's usually what we can get out of it. We think about relationships where we're sort of depositing into a love account. And I'm going to do some good things for you, but one day I'm going to cash in. One day I'm going to need you. And if I don't feel like this is a good investment, the things I'm doing for you, if I stop getting the return of joy and you just, it's sort of irritating to love you, then I'm going to move on. We, we, we so often think about love and what we get out of it. Think about the way you hand out compliments. Who do you compliment? Those who probably at some point are going to turn around and compliment you. You're so awesome. Oh, girl, you're so awesome too. You're waiting for the return. 
And you're disappointed when they don't say, you're awesome too. You're like, oh, that, that was a letdown. Most often we want a response. And, and that's because we're wired up in self-love. We love ourselves, And even our acts of love so often are self-love. But God doesn't have to be that way. Because he's self-sufficient in and of himself. He doesn't need you to give him anything back. He, and so he can lavish love upon you without expecting anything in return. And Christmas is a good time to meditate on that. To reflect upon that. Christmas isn't a gift swap with God. It's not that you show up to the party and everybody's got a gift. No, God is the gift. And, and you're not going to pay him back. And so as you're sitting there on Christmas morning and she opens that gift and you're, you're, you're thinking, man, I hope she loves it as much as I love what she gave me. And some of us are going to be this, we're going to be scared to death because we got this outlandish Christmas gift and we gave her gloves and, and, and we're in our gut and you're to remember well, I can't pay God back. That's not the way God works. But that's how some of you live before God. You, 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 you have received this amazing gift of grace from God. And you think your gloves are going to make him happy. You, 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 think, you think your little penance of do-goodism is going to pay God back, and you can't. And Christmas is to, you're to be reminded you can't pay God back. As your kids sit, sit around on Christmas morning, and moms, you're going to be the ones in such angst. Man, I hope they love that. I, I, hope, I hope I have somehow won over their affection with those duck boots. I, I hope that I get the mom of the year award. I hope she goes off into her room and takes the selfie and puts it on Instagram. Look what my mom got me and you are put on a pedestal. And, and, and you're going to have angst over that. Here's the reality. You can't buy God's affection. You don't have to. You may have to buy your little teenage girl's affection, but you don't have to buy God's affection. You can't. Dads are going to sit around and wonder, how much did all of this cost me? <laughs> and mom's going to say, we'll worry about it later. And you're going to say, no, I'll worry about it later. The reality is some of you live before God that way. You, you're, right now you're thinking, how much did all this cost me? God sent his son to die for my sins, raised him from the dead, gives me an eternal kingdom. How much is that going to cost me? You, you can't pay for it. God loves the world. It comes from God's love and it is given in grace from a person you can't pay back. Notice how he loves the world. He gave his only son. Now the word only here is to magnify the son's uniqueness. There is only one son. 
But it's also meant to show and display his authority, his status, his right. He is the second person of the Trinity. He is God's son. God rules the world. And so sons do what their fathers do. The son rules the world like the father does. He is God's king. And that's why so often we translate this, his only begotten son. Because begotten refers to his kingship. This is God's king. God loved the world that he gave the only king to the world. The only right king to the world, which is his son. And we know this love culminates by giving the son at the cross. If love is a commitment to another person's good, no matter what it costs you, to love the world in sin, to love an unlovable world, it costs God, his son, to love the world. His king, the only right king. This is why we say biblical love is sealed in blood. Life. I love you even if it costs you my life. That's what biblical love is. And in giving the son, God has displayed such love for us. But also in giving the son, we have to realize the father has given himself. So often when we think about the gospel, the father loves and gives the son. We immediately disconnect the father there. No, the father and son are one. The father loves the son as himself. And so when he gives the son to the world, he is giving himself to the world. The father isn't requiring something distant from himself. He's not indifferent to sending the son to the world. We think God, God's in heaven. He says, you just go take care of that and I'll, I'll relax for a while. No, he's engaged. He loves, he's committed to the world. He's given himself to the world. So often we like to say, it's not the gift that matters. It's the thought that counts. Now, you say that when you don't like the gift that you got. Oh, it doesn't matter. All I want for Christmas is you, and that's not true. I want you to think enough of me to spend some time to get me a good gift. And, and I have never achieved this feat in my life for my wife. My wife is so unique. It used to frustrate me. She is so hard to figure out what she likes. I mean, well, I'm going to get her some earrings. Well, she makes her own earrings. <laughs> What am I going to do? Give her a flax and wool gift card? <laughs> That's her small business, if you don't know. And she's so, it's so hard to figure it out. And we go, oh, it's not the gift. It's the giver that matters. And then last Christmas, last Christmas, it all came together for me. I bought her a table saw. And I, and I, I thought, and she's weeping. She's weeping. She opens the box, and she is weeping for, for joy. This is what I wanted. And I'm thinking, I could have saved a lot of money on jewelry and stuff over the years if I had just bought saws and drills and all of that. <laughs> so now I give her gift cards to Lowe's and Home Depot. But, but there, we think about God's gift to us. We think about God giving himself to us. It's in giving himself to us that the gift and the giver come as one. They're not distinct. You, you don't have to say, oh, I really love the gift. 
I don't really like the giver. Or all that matters is the giver, not what he's given. In giving us himself, God gives us both. We have the giver and the gift and the thought that counts. We have it all together in one. You see, what God has given us in the kingdom is himself. That's the whole point of the kingdom. We talk a lot around here about kingdom because the Bible is driven by kingdom imagery. Why? Because we need a king in a kingdom. That's what we need. That's the way God has wired up human history. And in the kingdom he gives us, we get him as our king. That was Israel's problem. That they, they wanted a kingdom, but they didn't want God as king. In the end, we get the kingdom and we get the gift of God being king of the kingdom in Jesus Christ. And so, this is what Christmas is all about. The, the gift comes as the giver. The giver comes as the gift. And the kingdom is the gift we've received in the king. God's rule and reign that overshadows a peasant, poor woman's womb and miraculously, supernaturally brings forth life. One who is 100% God, he's always been God. One who is 100% man, who takes on flesh as the only one, the only person who can die for sin, the only person who can live a perfect life, the only person who could be a perfect sacrifice for our sin. The kingdom comes to us in the person. The gift of the kingdom comes to us in the king. And he walks around and he begins to, to, to heal sickness and he begins to heal disease. He speaks to waters that calm before him. Folks who could not see begin to see again. And he gives us a window into the gift that he has brought to us in his person. As Jesus stands in a world cursed with sin and death and you see him speak and the, the effects of sin and death begin to reverse before people's very eyes, what he is saying is Merry Christmas. This is the gift of the kingdom that I have brought to you. The kingdom is at hand in my person. And this is where you will live forever. You'll live in a kingdom where there's no sickness and disease forever. You'll live in a place where there's no sin and death forever. Merry Christmas. This is the gift that I bring to you in my person. You get the gift and you get the giver. Notice Christmas demands a response here. God hasn't just thrown some gifts under the tree and walked away. God's not content in just saving us from hell and going away. No, he, he's intent on pleading. He's intent on calling us to himself. Notice here that whoever believes, whoever, that's the whole point of John, Jews and Gentiles, rulers, officials, pilots, scum of the earth, tax collectors, Whoever believes, the word believes means to have confidence and trust, to rely upon another. 
And so what he's saying is if you believe in God's love for you, that he sent, your, sent his son to die for your sins, that God raised him from the dead and he's given you eternal kingdom, if you will stake all of your hopes and dreams on him, if you would believe in him, have confidence in him and not yourself, his life in your place, his death in your place, if you would rely upon him, his son who lived a perfect life and died a perfect death in your place, notice... Whoever believes in him should not perish. Now, this is the state of the world that we described before, and it's the state of the world that John describes in his book. He says, if you haven't believed in Jesus, you're not waiting for condemnation. You're condemned already. You're headed to eternal destruction right now. You see, some of you are in here, you're, thinking about a time. <clears throat> You've heard the gospel over and over and you're thinking, there'll, get, there'll be a time, I'm just not ready for that. And, 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 and I, there'll become a time where I'll choose Jesus or reject Jesus. No, you're rejecting Jesus right now because you're not believing in him. In, the next, in this chapter, he says, you are condemned already. And so there are those who are headed to eternal destruction. You live in a world that is perishing right now. Sin and death is ravaging the world we live in. There's death, sin, disease, and you will live in that world forever, perishing, separated from God's goodness forever. Because of your sin, you deserve to be separated from him forever. But notice if you believe in him, you will not perish, but have eternal life. Eternal life. In John chapter 17, John defines eternal life this way. He says, eternal life is knowing the Son that God sent and knowing the Father who sent him. And so this is eternal life. So often we think there will be a day when I will perish. No, if you reject Jesus, you're starting to perish right now and you will perish forever. And you think there's a day when I will have eternal life. No, if you've believed in Jesus, you have eternal life right now. You exist in eternal life. Why? Because you know the Father and Son. That's how Jesus defines eternal life, that you would know Him and you would know the Father that, would, that has sent Him. And what does that mean? That if you know the Son and you know the Father, guess what you know? Guess what eternal life is? Love. The love of God. We began talking about the Father who has always loved the Son. And the Son who has always loved the Father. And the Holy Spirit who has always loved the Father. And has always loved the Son. If you believe in Jesus, you are wrapped up into that same love. That means the Father is committed to you the same way he's committed to the Son. That means the Son is committed to you the same way He is committed to the Father. And that's good news for you because He's so committed to the Father, He would die for your sins that you would know the Father. And the Spirit is so committed to you that He's going to always point you to Jesus. He's always going to remind you what you have in Jesus. In Romans chapter 5, we read this in verse 5. And hope does not put us to shame. 
Because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Eternal life is believing in Jesus and God gives us His Spirit. And what does the Spirit do? It pours out over and over God's love for us. It reminds you Jesus died for your sins. Jesus has been raised from the dead. God's Word is true. You have an eternal kingdom. The Father loves you. That's eternal life. And if you believe in Jesus, you have it right now. That is the gift of God. That you have love right now. That you know love right now. That is God's gift. That is a Merry Christmas. To know the love of God. You see, we so often come to this time of year and we're trying to think, what, what is this Christmas spirit? What is this, what is this holly jolly stuff I'm supposed to have? We've got polar bears that nuzzle each other to try to make us happy. This year we got baby Yodas with Santa Claus hats on. And they're supposed to give us this warm, fuzzy feeling about this time of year. And and we realize on December the 26th that it all falls short. December the 26th, for some of us, is the most depressing day of the year. No gifts. Family's gone. It only lasts for a speck and it's gone. And yet, what makes Christmas Christmas is the love of God. That something that existed in eternity past before you ever existed has been brought into your life through God's love in the Son that will carry you into eternity. You have a gift that overwhelms all other gifts. And you wake up on Christmas morning and some of you are going to have gifts that ruin every Christmas from here on out because it's an awesome gift. Some of you are going to wake up and you're going to get gifts that ruin every Christmas from here on out because it's a horrible gift. And you're going to remember, no, I have the love of God in Christ for me. You see, for some of us, this is the most depressing time of the year. And for others of us, it's hard to believe that. The most happy, holly jolly time of the year and you're over here depressed some of us are very very lonely during this time of the year there are folks that we celebrate at Christmases with that are no longer here and and it overwhelms us in sadness we show up at Christmas get-togethers and we look around the room and because of sin because of division because of conflict We talk about people who no longer come to Christmas dinner because they're mad, because they're angry. And and we're reminded of of sin and darkness, even this time of year when it's supposed to be so happy, so joyous. And, And we're to remember in those moments as we tolerate some of us Griswold family Christmas, the conflict, the stress, the darkness, the despair, that we have been folded into the love of God and we have fellowship with God forever. No matter what Christmas dinner looks like, we have a Father who is not just tolerating us. As as you tolerate others, as you endure the difficulty, God's not doing that for you. You see, you're going to struggle to love people. God's not struggling to love you. 
He sent his son because he loves you. And if you believe in his son, he's not tolerating you. He's delighting in you. In that very moment, he loves you as he loves the son. This eternal commitment to another person's good, no matter what it costs, has cost God the son. The blood of the son covers you. And God could not love you more. And that's a gift that should ruin every Christmas. Christmas. 